Maria, welcome to First Up, it's Rāpare, that is Thursday the 9th of February. Ko Nathan Rārere, aho. Coming up, Ukraine's President Zelensky is in the UK. Henry Riley joins us from London. We get the update from Turkey where rescuers are racing against time to save people from the rubble of the earthquake. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni will be live to discuss yesterday's government policy purge. And we ask what the minimum wage increase means for some small businesses. Think of all of the other costs we've had, flood damage, all the other costs of the ingredients, little things like mushrooms and onions, like the cost of them is just skyrocketing. So we can no longer sustain that and we're going to have to pass it on to the customer. Maria. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has addressed the UK Parliament in person this morning. I asked our correspondent Henry Riley if the President's visit came as a surprise. In short, yes, it was a complete surprise. We found out, I found out about 10 past 8 this morning that there was due to be an imminent announcement on a big visitor coming to the UK. We often get these trips, as as indeed every country does, but the, the sort of excitement that came from Downing Street, whilst Joe Biden is a huge figure, you were thinking it would have to be a sort of titan figure like Joe Biden or it could be Olaf Scholz, but the excitement with which Downing Street said that someone was coming did make us think is it going to be President Zelensky and so yes came as a complete surprise and then at 20 past 8 just 10 minutes later uh, we then had it announced that he would be visiting the UK We have a similar thing here but it's always Ed Sheeran uh, pretty much. Hey what was what, what was the, um, the, the purpose of President Zelensky uh, being at the Parliament? Well the, the purpose from his point of view is he has said he is trying to push ahead for these planes that he's after with regards to Ukraine's effort against Russia but also to thank the UK. He's you know well documented as saying he has a very good relationship with Rishi Sunak. They're on first name terms. He always refers to him as Rishi. Also with his predecessor Boris Johnson of course he often speaks quite highly of the former Prime Minister and he's packed a lot in it has to be said. So I had the privilege of standing outside Downing Street when he arrived and Zelensky was just sort of 40 feet away from me. And as soon as he, I mean, he, he was greeted by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at Stansted Airport. They shook hands. They then got in a car convoy, headed over to Downing Street at around, I think it was half past 10. They arrived, they shook hands, they waved. And they, whilst they opened the famous door of number 10 and they stepped into Downing Street, the rapturous applause you could hear, the cheering, the lights that were flickering, it really was a moment the ukrainian flag also flying from above downing street as well and it was really one of those moments that you kind of step back and and realize the significance of this zelensky's second visit since the war started the war will mark a year uh, this later this month and this is only his second visit of course went to the us in december rightly so and to visit the uk today it really is something that the government are extremely pleased about and i i, I heard that he asked for uh, planes you know air support for for help there how likely is he to get those i mean President Zelensky definitely has 
sort of public sympathy on his side. Um, what's interesting is Boris Johnson, who has kept surprisingly in, in many ways quiet throughout this whole invade throughout the, the whole of Rishi Sunak's premiership. He's sort of started to get itchy feet now in that he's coming out very much saying that the UK needs to do more to help Ukraine. It does look like there is going to be movement at some point. I would suggest President Zelensky is actually visiting some of the Ukrainian troops who are currently being trained in the UK to use NATO standard fighter jets. That would suggest a shift in the policy, it must be said. And he's going to visit those troops in the southwest later today. The UK obviously training up uh, various troops with, with, with regards to that. And he, he was very funny during his address. You know, for instance, he said, um, I thank you for the delicious English tea last time I was here. I'll be leaving Parliament today thanking you in advance for all of your powerful English planes. So Vladimir Zelensky, who we know, of course, was an actor. He's He's got a real way with words. And speaking, you know, extremely, we knew he could speak English, but speaking completely in English, really really held his own in a sort of 30 to 40 minute address. There were no slip ups. It was like a real performance, which Zelensky delivered at Westminster Hall. It was listened to by journalists, by MPs, by members of the House of Lords. And it really was a sort of hair in the back of your neck raising moment. And I hear too, he, he also, well, he's granted an audience with King Charles here at Buckingham Palace. Yes, and he kept referencing the king during his speech as well. He's just left Buckingham Palace where he was meeting His Majesty the King. They shook hands. There was a video released. Often we get the audio with these videos. We haven't had it this particular time, although I don't imagine they were saying anything particularly controversial. But the king has been actually very outspoken with regards to the war in Ukraine, constantly saying that he, you know, we should stand with the with the Ukrainian people, being quite condemnatory, which is unexpected for a king. And indeed, when he was the Prince of Wales before that, um, with regards to Russia's involvement as well. Zelensky has just left Buckingham Palace. Of course, we know he's actually going to head out of the UK a bit later on today. He's going to head to Paris, it's been announced, and then uh, going to head to the European Union as well. So marking it sort of a, a, as a part of a European tour, it certainly looks like. But you're right, he, he met the king. He kept referencing the king in his speech and uh, clearly Zelensky being welcomed, rightly so, by the great and the good in the UK. Henry Riley there in London. It's 11 past five. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. We go to Sweden, where our correspondent in Europe, Anita purcell Sherland, is standing by. Morena, doctor, how are you? Fine, thank you. Morena. So the, the earthquake in Turkey obviously dominating world news there. How is Europe responding? Well, with the combined um, current death rate in Syria and Turkey is, according to some reports, 11,000 and 300,000 dis- displaced people in Syria. Uh, in response to Turkey's request for EU and NATO assistance, the EU has mobilised, and this is just the beginning, um, over 1,000 rescuers and nearly 80 search dogs from 19 EU member states. Now, more than 1,400 emergency response personnel from over 20 NATO allies and partners including um, invitees Finland and Sweden, are deploying to Turkey to help the, you know, over 50,000 Turkish first responders. Now, the Syrian government has formally requested European humanitarian assistance to help its search and rescue and to provide medical items and food products. And at the moment, the EU is also financially supporting humanitarian organisations in Syria uh, carrying out uh, search and rescue operations. 
Right. Hey, we just heard that President Zelensky is, is in the UK at the moment. He's asking for fighter jets. What, what's the, the latest in the war there in the Ukraine and also the latest on the delivery of the tanks that were promised? Well, Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands announced that they plan to provide Ukraine with 100 refurbished Leopard 1 battle tanks. Now, this comes amid reports from the Luhansk region of tens of thousands of Russians being sent to eastern Ukraine as part of an offensive planned after the 15th of February. Meanwhile, the United Nations chief Antonio Guterres has expressed fear of a wider war as the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches. And not to repeat what um, Henry has mentioned, but he mentioned um, that Zelensky is on a European tour. Well, um, this has just come through that Ukrainian officials announced that uh, President Zelensky will ask a summit of European leaders later uh, Thursday for more arms to fight Russia and also powering ahead with Kiev's bid to join the EU. I, I see that uh, this this is uh, this one interests me greatly. There, the way the French react to things. So, strikes and mass street demonstrations continue across France. And this is the third day, and this is about the plan there to raise the the retirement age. Yeah, well, at the moment, the current retirement age in France is 62, which is the lowest of any big European economy. And President Emmanuel Macron's plan is to raise the retirement age to 64 and to increase the number of years people must make uh, contributions for a full pension. Now, the government said that 757,000 people uh, took part in more than 200 street demonstrations this week. And apparently that was a reduction in the number of people protesting. Uh, trains and urban transport were severely disrupted and one in five flights at Paris Orly Airport uh, were cancelled. Now, President Macron's bill is currently being debated in Parliament and his ruling centrist group faced furious scenes of shouting and desk banning, banging on the first day of debate on Monday. Now, in order to pass the pensions bill, Macron's party is facing tense negotiations to convince lawmakers from the right-wing party Labour Republicans to back them. Interesting. Um, now, an investigation has shown that this is Russia approved supply of heavy anti-aircraft weapons to Ukraine separatists who shot down the Malaysia Airlines MH17 in 2014. Yeah, in the Netherlands, an international team of investigators announced that it found strong indications, but that it had insufficient evidence to launch any new prosecution. Now, just to recap, in 2014, the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was flying over eastern Ukraine en route from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, and Ukrainian separatists shot down the Boeing 777 with a Russian missile, killing all 298 people on board. Now, the international joint investigation team said it found strong indications that President Vladimir Putin approved the supply of the anti-aircraft weapons to Ukrainian separatists. Russia has always denied any involvement in the downing of the flight and refused to cooperate with the international investigation. And Dutch prosecutors said that without Russian cooperation, the investigation reached its limits and all leads have been exhausted. OK, let's keep it Russia, because every now and then you get celebrity involvement in conflicts and you're like, well, what are they doing there? Russia has asked Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters to act as its spokesperson at the UN Security Council. That That is odd to me. 
Well, the short answer to that, yeah, it's very odd. <laughs> but basically, Moscow requested a Security Council meeting to discuss the delivery of weapons to Ukraine, and it asked Roger Waters to address the council as part of Russian diplomacy. Now, last September, Waters published on his website an open letter to Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska, in which he argued against the Western supply of weapons to Kyiv. Now, one UN security diplomat um, has, you know, of course, the UN security diplomats have um, criticized Russia's request with one saying, quote, Russian diplomacy used to be serious. What next, Mr. Bean? Unquote. So basically, Russia's UN ambassador says that Waters has a position on the issue and that he should be given a chance to speak. Now, the 15-member Security Council has met dozens of times since Russia invaded Ukraine last February 24, but it's unable to make any action because Russia is a veto power, along with the United States, China, Britain and France. Interesting. Thank you very much uh, from Europe there. That is Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland. Um, yeah, the celebrity involvement. It reminds me of who was the, uh, the uh, Stephen Seagal uh, apparently uh, saying, yeah, don't worry, I know how to negotiate these overseas deals. Send me in, Mr. President, as a, as a way to go. So... Uh, yeah, celebrity involvement, an odd time to do so. Well, let's go to our Pacific neighbour Tonga now, where the government is trying to introduce an anti-corruption policy that's been on ice for 15 years. To tell us more, I'm uh, joined by our correspondent, Kalafi Moala. Malo um, Lele? Yes, Malo Lele. What, what does this anti-corruption bill do, and why has it been delayed? Well, it's been 15 years uh, with five governments in place. And uh, finally, last week, the prime minister in parliament uh, raised the issue that they need to make some amendments to the bill and then uh, approve it so that they can uh, set it up. So it's a major thing for us because corruption is a, a major issue, a major problem for Tonga. And uh, so this could be uh, a major step in trying to fight corruption in our country. Also, I see that a key figure in Tonga's 2010 constitutional reforms has died. Yes, that's right. Dr. Sitiveni Halapur, uh, he was quite involved in uh, bringing the reform, uh, constitutional reform in 2010. And he passed away at the age of uh, 74. Oh, that's sad to hear that he's gone. Also, you've been looking into Fiji's commitment to people who've been deported for political reasons. Uh, what have you found, Kalafi? Well, it's a, a major issue, uh, really, uh, for Fiji because uh, Tonga has been a place, for example, where people that have been deported, politically deported, uh, since the Bainimarama um, government. And one of them, of course, is a, a high uh, chief in Fiji, uh, Ratu Tevitamara. Uh, and he actually was not only deported, he was rescued by a Tongan naval boat and have been living in Tonga for, uh, for all these years. And so we're, we're looking at, uh, at uh, Ratumara uh, returning to Fiji, and I think it's a, a great thing that some of those who were deported to New Zealand, to Australia, are going to be returning to Fiji. 
Kalafi, quite often here, uh, our you know fruit and and agriculture and uh, industry say you know it'd be great to have workers from the islands come in to do stuff here. So New Zealand, in a way, keeps nicking Tonga's workers. What what impact is this having in Tonga? It's a huge impact currently. For example, there are calls from the business communities, even from some uh, government departments, that there is a kind of a labour drain or. Uh, as, as traditionally mentioned, uh, uh, like a brain drain. In other words, uh, the, the businesses are calling out for uh, uh, workers uh, to be employed, and there are no workers around. I'll give you an example. Uh, quite a number of the restaurants, quite a number of the tourism operations are complaining that their workers, some of their key workers, have left Tonga uh, to work overseas on the seasonal uh, work program. So we are having a shortage of workers due to that. And uh, some big news there yesterday, uh, a shipment of 3.2 tonnes of cocaine that was picked up by New Zealand authorities. May have been bobbing uh, around in the Pacific Ocean, probably not far from Tonga. Do you have any indication about what happened? Well, definitely, uh, uh, of course, in the news they uh, announced that this was uh, New Zealand's biggest uh, drug uh, hall in in history, and and the location is quite a, quite an interest for Tonga because the location, as mentioned in the news item, is is northeast of New Zealand, uh, six days sailing uh, to New Zealand. So definitely, it was in international uh, waters, but not far from Tonga. And it's interesting that back in twenty twenty one. Uh, there was a uh, drugs, uh, cocaine, for example, was uh, washed up in the shores of Vavau Islands here in Tonga. Uh, so definitely Tonga is a place to watch where a lot of transshipment of uh, cocaine comes in from uh, South America, uh, heading for both New Zealand and Australia. So this discovery uh, is, is great news, but it shows you how vulnerable the Pacific is for truck uh, delivery. Yeah. Kalafi Moala, thank you very much. There he is, out of Tonga. 22 and a half past five. It's Nathan Rarita here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming out, the government killed off some of its flagship policies yesterday. We'll speak to the Deputy Prime Minister about that. And also LDR reporter Steve Forbes uh, reports that there are at least 50 people waiting for a bed at Middlemore Hospital's emergency department at any given time. One of Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' announcements yesterday was an increase of $1.50 to the minimum wage. So currently sitting at $21.20, the minimum wage will be lifted to $22.00. 70 come April. Mr Hipkins explained the changes to Checkpoint last night. So the 7.2% that we increased the minimum wage by didn't come out of nowhere. That is the rate of inflation and also, coincidentally, it's also the rate of overall wage growth within the economy. So this is about making sure that those who are on the lowest incomes, and there's about 60,000 people who are uh, you know, working full-time on the minimum wage, it's about making sure that they are keeping up and not being left behind because other people's wages are going up by about 7.2% on average. It is about making sure that minimum wage workers don't, get, don't miss out in that equation. The owner of Umu Pizza in Kingsland, Paul Considine, says the change is going to be tough on his business's finances. I don't want to say it's crippling, but it's almost at that point because basically the majority of our staff are students. You know, they're at that lower end wage. So although it's fantastic for them, it's pretty hard on us as a business to keep everything afloat. 
He says his business will have no choice but to raise their prices. We can no longer sustain additional costs within the business. We just have no choice but to pass it on to the customer, unfortunately. So, I mean, that's going to put the prices up. Um, yeah, we're, just, we're going to have to match it this time. The, the last time we didn't, we tried our best because our customers are so loyal. You know, we tried our best not to, but this time we're definitely going to have to put them up. Mr. Considine says the rise in the latest uh, is the latest challenge for an industry already being stretched to its limits. Oh, it's huge. You think of all of the other costs we've had, having to deal with, you know, flood damage, lots of other, you know, all, all the other costs of the ingredients, little things like mushrooms and onions, like the cost of them is just skyrocketing. So we can no longer sustain that. And, just, we, and we're going to have to pass it on to the customer. We'll discuss Paul's concerns with Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni when she joins us live later in the programme. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life. We call the 9th of February, and happy birthday to the following celebratories. Here we go. Michael B. Jordan is 36 years old today, and Tom, and, and is, is that right, Katrina? And single uh, here in my ear. And <laughs> Tom Hiddleston is uh, 42 years old today, both of them of the Marvel Cinematic, uh, Cinematic Universe, actually. So there you go. Uh, Holly Johnson, the singer from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I remember at school, I think we, just, we all just thought his name was, oh, that's Frankie. No, it's not. He's just the singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is, of course, based off a, uh, a famous poster with Frank Goes to Hollywood about um, Frank Sinatra. But Holly Johnson, welcome to the Pleasure Dome. He's 63 years old today. Joe Pesci. I love Joe Pesci. Loads of gangsters that he played, but um, he was also Harry the Wet Bandit in Home Alone. He's 80 years old today. Yes, 80. Uh, Carol King, the beautiful voice of Carol King. 81 years old today. Speaking of voices, on this day in 1992, Thomas Skorl of Germany became the fastest yodeler in the world. We've got some Thomas here. He yodeled 22 tones in 15 falsetto in one second. That'll mean something to yodelers, I don't know, but it sounds like a pretty cool statistic. On this day in 1926, teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution in public schools was banned by Atlanta's Board of Education. And this was a day in 1964 that was huge, really, for the the Beatles making it in North America. So they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. They had been on TV once before, so this wasn't their television debut, but this was the big one. This is when late-night TV owned everything. 73.7 million people watched the Beatles, and watching on from the side of the stage was... Davy Jones, who would be a monkey later on, and he was in the cast of Oliver, and they'd had to do something beforehand, it was the Outful Dodger, and he said, I watched the Beatles from the side of the stage, and then I saw all the girls going crazy, and I said to myself, this is it, I want to be a piece of that. Maybe could have just yodeled. There we go, and that is the day of our life we call the 9th of February. With us now from the business team is Anand Zaki. Kia ora, my man. How are you? Kia ora. Very well, thank you. Well, that yodelling definitely uh, woke me up this Gets morning. Gets you up, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> That'd be quite a good ringtone, I think. Hey, um, tell me about this. The falling property prices didn't dent sellers looking for top dollar, though. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you'd think that as the housing market uh, continues its slowdown, many sellers would lower their expectations. Uh, But that uh, didn't appear to be the case uh, during 2022. Uh, We have data from realestate.co.nz and they say, um, you know, based on all the listings on their website, uh, shows an 11% rise in sellers' asking prices last year compared to 2021. So remember, this is the asking price, not the sale price. Uh, Auckland is the only region uh, where asking prices fell down 7% over the year, while in Canterbury it's doubled. Uh, so realestate.co.nz Chief Executive Sarah Wood, uh, she told us that sellers were looking backwards uh, at the 2021 market uh, and not the current situation. Uh, And interestingly, 41% of residential listings on their website uh, had the price reduced uh, on the listing during the whole of 2022 uh, compared to just 10% the year before. So perhaps a sense of reality kicking in for a number of sellers. And Uh, As we start the new year, Sarah Wood uh, told us that they're still hearing from real estate agents that many sellers continue to ask for more than the local prices. Uh, But it's a tough market. Uh, You know, nationally, residential listings stayed online 25% longer last month than in January 2022. So patience is needed if you're looking to sell your house. Yeah, it used to sell, they'd put it on the market and it was gone by the time they'd finished, you know, hitting send uh, on, the, on the ad, on the, on the blog. That's so, right. It was, uh, I think it was, you know, basically it took about a month for everything to get done. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was very quick. And, and just uh, speaking of that, um, just quickly, Australia has blocked this creation of a coal mine and this is part of the environmental laws, isn't it? Yeah, it's the first time this has happened uh, in Australia. It's really interesting uh, because mining is, of course, a big part of Australia's economy. And this decision uh, may have caught some uh, in the industry by surprise. Uh, Perhaps not. It was flagged last year. That could be a possibility. Uh, The country's government rejected a proposal for a a new open-cut mine about 10 kilometres from the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, It was proposed to operate for about 20 years. And the mine is owned by the uh, controversial Australian billionaire Clive Palmer, uh, and he hasn't responded to the decision. Um, And the country's uh, environment minister said the project uh, posed an unacceptable risk uh, to the world heritage areas. Uh, And of of course, Australia, uh, a major supplier of uh, fossil fuels uh, to the world. So this is a big decision uh, over there and very interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, thank you very much, sir. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's see what your New Zealand dollar is worth today. For those of you keeping scores, just give me a chance to get your pen working. Good, here we go. 63.05 US cents, 90.69 Australian cents, 58.83 Euro cents, 52.27 British pence, 4.3 yuan and 82.83 Japanese Yen, it is 25 to 6 here at first up on RNZ National. Rescuers are racing against time to save people underneath the rubble of the earthquake that ripped through parts of Turkey and Syria. At least 11,000 people are confirmed dead, and the toll is rising. In Turkey, more than 8,000 people have been pulled from the wreckage. The, the country is now under a three-month state of emergency. Uh, joining me now is uh, local journalist uh, Barçin Yenanch. Uh, 
Jason, thank you uh, very much for being with us. How, how bad is the uh, situation right now as you see it in the earthquake struck areas? Well, that's the problem. I think we uh, have difficulty even to grasp how bad the situation is. It is bad, but how bad, in order to understand that, we have to have people everywhere, rescuers going and trying to reach uh, everywhere. Unfortunately, in some areas, uh, they are still not reached by, by rescuers. There is no internet. There is no light. Um, actually, I happen to be um, my, my father's family happens to be from one of the places where the earthquake has taken place, Elbistan Marash. My cousin went there uh, by car to get my aunt and family out. And, uh, you know, he told me that it's even worse and worse and worse than, than what is being uh, reported all over the press, mainstream media or social media. I'm sorry to hear that about your family. I, I hope for good news from them. So tell me, how has the government response been and are people satisfied? Well, there's huge frustration uh, towards the government and there's huge um, criticism uh, towards the government, especially the problem is they, uh, they try to inform uh, the public. Um, but uh, what angers people is that um, they try to give the sense that they can reach out to every place, which is not the case. Um, they, we are receiving, especially from uh, the social media, uh, that there are people alive still waiting for rescuers uh, to come. And when the government comes out and says there is not one place uh, which, have, which we have not reached out, um, that creates an anger because they expect the government to come up with a, uh, with a more realistic uh, account uh, of uh, what they are doing. And at the end of the day, when we look at, the, at their performance, the fact that, you know, there's no internet, no light, etc., um, experts have been warning for years, for decades, that Turkey is in an earthquake zone and that uh, it would be only natural to expect earthquakes with that huge scale. Um, therefore, um, I, I cannot say that People are satisfied by the performance shown by the government. Obviously, they have mobilized um, uh, the army as well. But what I can say is that uh, the society, the civil society, uh, the uh, non-governmental organizations, everybody, everybody is currently um, trying to do something exactly because they do not trust that the government is doing enough. But, but I have also uh, underlined the fact that, indeed, we have had uh, right now, two very big um, earthquakes with huge scale. Um, so, uh, well, it, it wouldn't. It would have been challenging uh, for any government, but for this particular government, um, we still feel that they should have been more prepared. Uh, Barchin, I, I, I understand it's it's so hard for rescue workers trying to uh, get into uh, this sort of situation anyway, but I understand there that the weather uh, isn't the greatest either. How are the rescuers coping with the weather and can you tell us what it's like? Well, exactly. It has taken place uh, under the winter conditions here in Turkey, plus it's on east and southeast Turkey, which means that during winter time in December, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, uh, uh, February, I'm sorry, between December, February, it's, it's the cold, coldest uh, season 
in southeast and sometimes um, village roads are are closed because of the uh, snow. Uh, therefore, uh, indeed, um, uh, the the weather conditions are not helping. Um, the the rescuers are 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 wasting with time. The problem is there are not enough um, number of rescuers. Um, uh, reaching out to those who are under the rubble. And I actually were hearing stories that uh, the, some of the relatives, they just grab whoever they found in, in one wreck saying, you know, leave it here, just come out uh, to us. And, and then um, so we're, we're hearing stories like that. But I have to also underline the fact that the world has um, quickly responded to Turkey's request for, for help. Therefore, um, uh, there are thousands of um, rescuers from abroad that have come, especially as um, Turkey is near to Europe. It has requested um, uh, the EU um, uh, emergency mechanisms uh, intervention. So in, in, in the first 12 hours, um, we've received some uh, teams uh, from Europe to, uh, to come out. Uh, but even with the um, um, help coming from uh, abroad, um, there, there is. Um, they have not been enough to reach out uh, to some uh, places. But as a, as a good news, even at the 61st hour, um, somebody was uh, rescued uh, today. Well, that's great news. But Barchin, thank you very much for your time. That's a local journalist out of Turkey, uh, Barchin Yinonj. <laughs> The Professionals of Morning Report are here after six and it's Corin Dan now to set the table for you. Kia ora, what's happening today? Uh, kia ora, good morning. Good morning everybody. Uh, we will uh, look at the uh, policy reset that was announced yesterday of course. We'll have Grant Robertson, the Finance Minister on, also Nicola Willis, so we'll cover issues around uh, the minimum wage increase as well. We'll put them through their paces. We'll also talk to uh, Melissa Lee, the National Party's broadcasting spokesperson. Uh, lots, of course, on the terrible earthquake, terrible scenes coming out of Turkey and mm. Syria again overnight. That death toll continues to rise, and they just—it uh, is just unbelievable. Some of the uh, scenes, the apocalyptic. Uh, we've got Cyclone Gabriel. Is it? They've named it now. That's yeah. sort of flirting with the top of the north of New Zealand. This I'm is just, a worry. I'm just going to be like one of those mm. uh, vaccine denier people, and if I and if I just ignore that it's happening, hopefully it, it just won't happen. Oh dear. I can't deal with it. It's it's we're, it's right at that I can't point face where it. we. I know it's right at that point. Where we don't know exactly where how bad it's going to be, but we'll have Met Service on for the very latest because we're going to have to be ready at the very least for something there. And the big story of the morning, Faulty Towers reboot. It's yeah. on the way. Don't mention the war. No. Heck no. Mm. <laughs> it's back. Cheers. Thank you very much. Well, look, a, a frontline healthcare worker says that she is worried about Middlemore Hospital Emergency Department. That's uh, worried about the ability to cope during the upcoming flu season. So she says staff are heading across the Tasman for better pay and working conditions. And joining me now is the reporter who broke the story. It's Stephen Forbes uh, from the local Democracy Reporting Programme. Always a pleasure to speak to you, Stephen. Thanks very much for being here. So tell us about what the staffer has been saying. Yeah, okay, so the nurse or healthcare worker I spoke to from Middlemore's ED said it was hemorrhaging staff who were leaving the industry and heading across the Tasman for better paying conditions. She said she was concerned about, obviously, the impact this loss of staff was going to have on the department's ability to function during the upcoming winter flu season. Followed a damning report into the ED in October last year, which said workforce shortages in the department resulting in untenable workloads for staff and leading to increased burnout of doctors and nurses. Uh, that report was part of an independent inquiry after a patient death in June. 
so the healthcare worker I spoke to said the hospital is continually operating at or above capacity and at, at any one time there's up to 60 patients in the ED waiting for a bed in one of the wards. She used the example of one patient who she said recently had to wait 43 hours in the ED for a bed on one of the wards. Uh, the New Zealand Nurses Organisation said that the department was continually short-staffed and vacancies weren't being filled in time to keep up with the numbers of staff resigning, uh, which they said was putting the start, putting patient safety at risk. Te Whatawara Chairman Rob Campbell said the shortages in the country's hospitals were complex and would take time for Te Whatawara to fix, but he said a new intake of junior doctors was in the pipeline and new pay equity rates for nurses would make it more attractive to work in the sector. But uh, Rob Campbell admitted the staffing shortages plaguing Middlemore's ED wouldn't be addressed in time for the next winter flu season. And he said it would continue to impact services. Wow. So he it didn't he couldn't really offer a timeline. I know when they said there's more on the way, but no. I guess they can't give you a timeline yeah. of when, can they? No, and he was talking more in rounder terms. He was talking more about the overall hospital yeah. and not directly the ED, so... Yeah. Um, now, you know, uh, Kainga Order have uh, built a lot of homes recently, but I see they're in, in Mangere, uh some of them, they're damaged after the flood. So tell us about that. Yeah, the residents in Mangere's uh, Ventura Street say the properties in the area regularly flood during heavy rain and Kainga Ora and the Auckland Council need to step up to address their concerns. Uh, most of the homes in Ventura Street were severely damaged in recent flooding and many of the affected properties were Kaingora houses built in the last three years. Uh, the street backs onto Te Arata Creek, which rises rapidly with increased stormwater and surge during storms. Uh, one of the residents I spoke to said there were plans to hold a public meeting before the recent flooding. Uh, and Mungary Odahu uh, local board chairman Nick Bukalich said local residents have previously raised concerns about the flooding caused by the creek and he said Auckland Council is aware of the problem but the city's stormwater network is just not up to it. Uh, Auckland Council refused to answer questions I sent them about the ongoing flooding in the street and said its focus remains on the city's state of emergency and supporting communities recovering from the storm events. Uh, but Fletcher Living, which partnered with Kaingora to build thousands of new homes in the area, said under the development agreement it had with the Auckland Council, uh, Auckland Council and Kaingora were responsible for upgrading the infrastructure in the area. Um, also, too, I know we saw the stories uh, on the, the telly the other week about onions all over the yep. road there, and you've been looking at the yep. impact on of uh, the floods on veggie prices. What have you found? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, the growers I spoke to last week, they were still cleaning up after the recent floods in Auckland. Uh, but last year they were hammered by a drought, and less than a year later they're now dealing with the impact of record floods. I spoke to one of the market gardeners, Sean Fong. Uh, his family business has been based in Pukekohe since the 1950s, and his fields had lines gouged out of the soil by the floodwaters, and he said he lost about 20 to 30% of his crop. Uh, he said they'd already been harvested and left in the open to dry, but he said they were now obviously damaged by the flooding. And he said he was convinced the latest flood damage would lead to increased prices of all green vegetables, potatoes and onions. Stephen, thank you very much for your reporting. There he is, Stephen Forbes from LDR.
to politics for dessert on the program, shall we? Um, the new Prime Minister, Chris Hitkins, laid waste to a slew ooh, of major policies yesterday. TVNZ, RNZ merger gone, social insurance gone, hate speech reforms gone, biofuel mandates gone, three waters, I'm not quite sure. So to discuss all of this, we're delighted to be joined by the Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel uh, Sepuloni. Uh, thank you uh, very much for being here. Just on the the, one, the ones that are called the hate speech laws, the, the government's passed it to the Law Commission to, to sort out. What, what can they do better than what's previously been done on this? They can traverse the space um, much better, I guess, um, and, and also just to make sure that uh, it's really informed from a, a law perspective. Uh, with regard to hate speech, some people thought we were going too far, some people didn't think we were going far enough, and so we're just asking the experts for some advice on this. I'm always worrying about the people that, that are thinking that this goes too far. What are they hoping to be able to say without getting in trouble? Oh, look, I'm not sure. I'm just, I think there were, there were some, you know, there are some concerns that some people perhaps don't understand the extent of what was being put up. But at the end of the day, this is the elegant solution. Uh, let the Law Commission give advice on what needs to happen here. Okay. Also to the, the social unemployment insurance scheme, that, that was one of the flagship Labour policies when it was announced last year. That one's gone for a bit of the, the scrap heap. Uh, also the biofuel mandate aimed at reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. I'm thinking that, that must be quite a hard thing to justify in this last week, considering what you yourself have been dealing with in, in your electorate. Well, yeah, at the same time, as the Prime Minister has said, uh, it really is about what's front of mind for New Zealanders right now. And clearly people are concerned about the cost of living. Uh, the biofuels move would have increased costs to people. And right now is just not the time to do that. But also, too, I mean, uh, I guess what, what jumped to my front of mind was, man, you know, the glo- global, global warming, you know, the climate change is a, a, a real thing. Did, are you expecting pushback on, on this that you're, you know, ch- changing and I guess being more reliant on fossil fuels again? I think people want us to focus on what's front of mind for them. It is a balance that we have to strike, uh, but right now is not the time to increase costs to families. Okay. Are these these just changing because you feel that they're unpopular? No, it's not about popularity. It's about listening to New Zealanders and focusing on on what is front of mind for them. And cost of living really is. It comes through time and time again in our conversations uh, in, in all of the communications and we have to listen to New Zealanders and that's exactly what uh, the Prime Minister is doing, what we are doing and that that was what the announcement was about yesterday. Okay. I, I, uh, I understand that uh, you got to one of the um, support centres for the flooding the other week and, and I, was, I was told that it was like Carmel came in and was like, no one's got food here and I think you gave your FPOS card perhaps to your husband or something. Go get, just go get food for these people. Go get the spare hoodies from home. Uh, uh, can you just talk us through what you saw in the last week? Look, I've certainly seen um, amazing collaboration between Auckland Council community groups have really stepped up and also government agencies. I think at the beginning it was really clear that um, this had come from nowhere, that we had expected rain but not to that extent. And so certainly with the Civil Defence Evacuation Hub I went to, Uh, At the beginning, it was a bit of a slow start, um, but that's where the community did come in and where we were able to contribute. But from there, uh, it's been an overwhelming level of support from all of the different stakeholders involved.
And look, there was the $5 million support package for flood-affected Auckland businesses, which I'm sure they will be grateful for. What, what about the peoples whose homes have been completely wrecked um, that are also going to need help? What, what can they expect? So the civil defence payments have been available since the state of emergency was called, and that is not uh, dependent on income. And so there's a range of support that's offered through the civil defence payments. Uh, there will be more, I have no doubt, because we need to make sure that we're looking after our social services who have uh, been supporting families during this time. Uh, this is one step, um, but we do need to keep looking at what is needed um, to ensure that all of the people involved in supporting Vano are supported to do so. What, what about, you know, we, we've, we've had our reporters out speaking to people, a lot of them just heartbroken with the state of their, their homes and some of those low-lying areas, and they're now worried that it's just going to keep happening. So is the government considering buying out homes which have been badly flooded more than once? That is not a consideration that um, I've certainly had discussions about. OK. Is, will there be any, um, I guess, push on the insurance companies to pay them out properly? Because I think a lot of their concerns was if we get a payout from insurance, it's, it's just not going to be enough. And then what's going to happen to us? I think there's certainly been discussions with insurance companies uh, to uh, make sure that they are moving as quickly as possible. And not easy in a situation where so many families have been affected. Um, but that has been the encouragement and discussion that's been going on. Okay. The, the, the water infrastructure, at, at the time, of course, it wasn't fit for purpose, but we've never seen that amount of rain before, so I guess it can get a, a slight pass there. But the country's water infrastructure as a whole, when we have a look at what is starting to happen now, these one in 100 year events that seem to be happening every two years, is it fit for purpose? Well, you know, the, the fact that we even were proposing the three waters policy was um, a, a measure or a policy that was in response to. Um, you know, having safe drinking water and also making sure that our water infrastructure is fit for purpose. I think events like this remind us that that is important. Um, there may be some changes to, there will be some changes to the three waters policy, but I think that uh, most New Zealanders can see from recent uh, weather events that it is necessary that we actually take some action here. Mm. And uh, oh, the wonderful news that a tropical cyclone is, is heading uh, towards New Zealand at the moment. I, I know this is more of a council thing, but do, are you aware uh, are preparations being made for this? Well, we're watching the weather really closely. Uh, we still have uh, emergency hubs set up. Uh, and I think, you know, given the experience over the last couple of weeks, uh, all of those involved are mindful that we may need to set up and increase support there if necessary. I think that people are well placed to do that. Okay. Uh, and, and it was a bit of a hot topic. I got asked about it probably just because it's my job uh, over the, the holidays. People going, what about the TVNZ, RNZ merger? So that one's um, come off the table there. Just in quick, with consultants still being paid um, up to, what, 6000 bucks a week until yesterday? Oh, look, I'm unsure of the, the consultant situation and, and how much they were being paid. Um, but as has been announced yesterday, um, the merger is now off the table. We still want to make sure that we've got um, good public media in this country and we'll look for ways in which we can uh, support that to happen. But the merger is not going to happen. 
All right. Um, Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni, thank you very much for being up with us early this morning here at First Up. So hopefully uh, um, like the forthrightness of the answers actually it was good. It wasn't word salady. Um, and uh, hopefully you got your answers there that you wanted. Yes, uh, another big amount of weather on the way. And like I said, I think I was like, oh, please, no, not again. Um, and particularly more so, I'm thinking now for people Swanson, Ranui, particularly with those uh, that live off Henderson Creek in, in Auckland, which was an area there too, but also Mangere as well. So let's just hope that it doesn't uh, appear as strong as it did last week when it came. Well, it's two weeks ago now, wasn't it? Goodness me. Morning Report is next with Guyana and Corin. We play you out with the wonderful sounds of the world champion yodeler Thomas Skull. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day, and we'll be back in your ears. Up or board. <laughs> Yeah!